Podcasting can be lonely, frustrating, confusing, and just simply damn difficult. But amid all that cacophony, there's a sense of reward, of huge satisfaction. It's wonderful. And just last night, a bunch of people all deeply involved with podcasting in one way or another got together in response to an idea from the fellow who had been behind Climactic Collective, Mark Spencer. They all got together, had a chat, laughed a lot, and enjoyed another side of podcasting. Hey, welcome to Climate Conversations. This is the latest episode. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now, before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. I was with those who were at last night's function at Melbourne's Arbury Bar, which is just next door to Flinders Street Station. And it's so nice to be among people who know what you're doing it, why you're doing it, and what you get from it. It's a bit like being in conversation with a group of people who care about the climate. They know what it's all about. They know what's happening. They know why you should care. And at no time are they expecting you to justify your beliefs or justify why you're saying what you're saying. They simply understand. Among those at the Arbury Bar, which is sandwiched in between Flinders Street Railway Station and the Yarra River, was of course Mark Spencer and good friend Sean Marsh, who's taking a break from podcasting right at this point, as he's now working for Climate 200, the organisation that played a key part or played a key role in seeing several people elected to the federal government at the 2022 election. Sean's podcasting was wonderful, and it's a standard by which I gauge my own performance. He was clean. He was precise, well-researched, and his podcasts were a pleasure to listen to. Oh, if I could be so good. Also at last night's function was the executive producer for podcasts put together by Adore Beauty Products, and that was the person called Chiara. Branded podcasts are becoming more and more common, and at last night's function was the strategy director from the Melbourne-based Wavelength Creative, Adam Jeffrey. You'll find a link to Wavelength Creative in the show notes. Such events as last night's gathering for podcasters and pod people associated with podcasting are in the greater scheme of things somewhat unimportant. But to those people involved, they are critical because it provides a sort of a subtle encouragement, something that says you're doing okay, keep in there, don't give up. So once again, thanks Mark. Let's move on now to the news stories and here's one from 10 News First. Australia's Great Barrier Reef is not endangered but remains under serious threat from global warming and pollution, according to scientific advisers from the United Nations. Chloe Boris has the details. The federal government's been lobbying for months for the Great Barrier Reef to not be listed as in danger. And after monitoring the situation, UNESCO is now recommending that the Australian treasure stays off the list at least for another year. 
Canberra is claiming this as a win, saying it's a result of its stronger climate ambitions. But UNESCO isn't skirting around it. The reef remains under serious threat. It's particularly worried about four mass coral bleaching events, even during a cooler La Nina period. And it says that urgent action must be taken to ensure its long-term resilience. But we're going again into a hotter, drier cycle. So we're very aware of that. That's why we need to help the reef build resilience. That's why we're improving water quality. It's why we're dealing with fishing uh, to make the reef, to give the reef the best chance of coping with those hotter, drier times. But the Greens and even some tourism operators have told 10 News First they would actually have preferred the reef be listed as in danger so that the threats are taken seriously. Let's shift now to a story from Mother Jones. And the story is by Tim Murphy and has the headline, Monsters, Cars Which Are Killing Us and the Planet. The subheadline for the story has, Automobile deaths keep rising and we keep doing absolutely nothing. The story begins. In American politics, deaths involving automobiles are discussed. When they are discussed at all, as a sort of a fatalistic unit of measurement by which other kinds of deaths might be diminished. When the death toll from COVID-19 began to surge in this country in the spring of 2020, then President Donald Trump invoked the high number who die as a result of car accidents to make the case for moving on. That doesn't mean we're going to tell everybody no more driving of cars, he said. If you ever talk about regulating firearms, a Republican member of Congress will appear like Candyman to tell you that actually cars kill more people. Those arguments tend to fall a few fries short. The coronavirus, after all, has gone on to kill more Americans than the Civil War. But these are not really factual arguments so much as expressions of principle. The point these people make when they invoke the death toll of cars is that it represents something inevitable and therefore unsolvable a tax we all pay for the whims of human fallibility. Offering a sheen of authority to this line of thinking, state and federal transport agencies often claim that 94% of crashes are the result of human error. And what's the government supposed to do about that? Now we have something from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. As a young man, Tim Harris of North Carolina served in the U.S. Coast Guard. He enjoyed working outdoors and traveling from place to place. I like to be mobile. I like to be able to be deployed. I have been conditioned to be mobile and to move and to be a part of the outdoors. So after his military service ended, he started a civilian career that allowed him to travel across the country. Harris is a safety professional certified by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and much of his work is on solar farm construction sites. He provides safety oversight, and he teaches workers how to protect themselves from falls, how to safely handle electrical equipment, and how to avoid accidents while excavating and trenching. Harris founded a company called HiVis Safety Professionals with another veteran, and he encourages other vets to explore careers in solar when their military service ends. He says the renewable energy industry can be a good fit for former military personnel, many of whom are eager for a mission-driven career. Those of us who served in the military, we have always sought a higher calling 
greater than ourselves. And renewable energy work fits into that mold. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Let's shift now to the Washington Post, where we have a story by Dan Stillman, and the headline for his story is Endless Seeming Heat Wave to Keep Broiling the Southern U.S. This Week. Dan's story begins. The endless summer heat wave in the southern United States, now entering its third month, continues this week, scorching millions of Americans with record heat and high humidity. While portions of the desert southwest will see the searing heat ease ever so slightly earlier this week, it's getting hotter along the Gulf Coast, especially in Louisiana and central to eastern Texas. The central dangerous heat will focus on the central and southern plains, the lower Mississippi Valley and the Gulf Coast states, where heat alerts were in effect Monday for more than 55 million people. Excessive heat warnings were issued for areas expecting the most extreme heat and humidity covering northeast Texas, including Dallas, northern and southeast Louisiana, including New Orleans, southwestern Mississippi and southeast Kansas. And now we have more about what's going on in the U.S. Parts of the country, like the Midwest and the Northeast, are getting some relief from the extreme heat, but it's a far different story down in the South. Triple-digit temperatures are expected in cities, including Phoenix, Arizona. There is one silver lining, though. Forecasters say today could be the first time in 31 days that the temperature in Phoenix will not go above 110 degrees. But as CBS News reporter Nicole Skanga shows us, the heat still poses a threat to the most vulnerable. Historic heat. For 31 straight days, temperatures skyrocketing above 110 degrees, then lingering at night. Among the particularly vulnerable, the homeless, making up more than 40% of heat-related deaths in Maricopa County last year. I'm a shade nomad again. I'm, I go from shady spot to shady spot, air conditioning to air conditioning. A shade nomad? Yeah. 58-year-old Jim Workman is just one of the nearly 10,000 Phoenix residents without a home. For 20 years, the Army veteran has trekked from Starbucks to city shelters just to stay cool. If you slack for a minute, you're going to die. The fastest growing homeless demographic in the valley, seniors. It's like homelessness on steroids, and the, the hardship is especially acute. Dean Scheinert runs Phoenix's only day center for older adults, providing water, AC, and showers in extreme heat, and sometimes medical intervention. The patient came in, and it, it was immediately diagnosed as heat stroke. When you are at that high temperature, your body does not sweat. So it's easy to not identify it. According to the CDC, heat stroke can begin as the body's core temperature rises above 103, ticking up to 106 degrees or higher within 10 to 15 minutes with potentially fatal consequences. And it's not just humans. But you can tell that he's panting. Yeah. It's hot out here. With Phoenix's rescue animals at high risk. All of our kennels are air conditioned. Dr. Stephen Hansen runs the busiest shelter trauma center in the southwest U.S., treating 1,300 pets with heat-related illness so far this year. 
many with burnt paws as surface temperatures reach up to 180 degrees. If you can't put your hands on the pavement and hold them there, it's too hot for a dog. Back on the street, Workman says he sleeps only four hours a night to avoid burning himself on the baking pavement. But a heat wave like this is simply unbearable. My biggest concern is waking up and not being able to do it no more. You know, I'm 58. I was supposed to be in a wheelchair three years ago. One day it's going to be there. I'm just not going to be able to get up no more. Examiner in Phoenix reports 25 heat-related deaths already this year, an additional 249 deaths under investigation. Lilia. Nicole, important story there. Uh, I see that you're back in D.C. So what are congressional lawmakers doing to address this dangerous heat there? Well, in June, a bipartisan group of lawmakers from Arizona, Nevada and Texas, some of these hotter southwest states, introduced a bill that, if passed, would allow the president to sign a declaration, a disaster declaration, in response to extreme heat, unlocking much-needed resources. For instance, states and cities could ask FEMA to deploy medical teams or gather up generators, and additional funding could help cities like Phoenix open more cooling centers, distribute water or even go door-to-door checking on residents. Now, extreme heat kills more people every year than nearly every other weather event combined. But the federal government does not deploy the same resources in response to these heat swells as they would for, say, hurricanes, tornadoes, or even flooding. Well, now local officials, scientists, community members who track and live in these dangerous conditions are telling CBS News they want the federal government to treat the heat like the disaster it is. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. As I said earlier, please follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to share with your friends. In fact, I urge you to share with your friends, because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. And I'd love to know what you think about this podcast, and you can contact me at r.mclean, the number seven, at iCloud.com. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.